Season two of Half Stack Data Science Podcast is brought to you by Egg on Air, a new series of live online and on-demand events created by DataIQ. Learn more and stay tuned for updates at egg.dataiq.com. Welcome to season two of Half Stack Data Science Podcast, The Orthogonals. Today, we speak with Andrea Jones-Roy, a social scientist specializing in complexity. She's written a book and several research papers on complex systems and regularly contributes articles to media outlets on, you guessed it, complexity, plus data science, international relations, diversity, and uncertainty. She's also a stand-up comedian and circus performer, which you can't say about a lot of other data scientists. The whole thing is confusing, as she says. But basically, she'll do whatever it takes to get people to pay attention to social science and complexity. Andrea earned her PhD in political science at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, where I also happened to get one. And so we spend a bit of time talking about why you shouldn't do a political science PhD to become a data scientist, but how if you happen to have one, it will benefit you incredibly. We talk about finishing off PhD theses in Thai restaurants uh, on very little sleep. And most importantly of all, what skills are missing from most data science courses and what to do about it. Welcome, Andrea, to Half Stack Data Science Season 2. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. We start with a question for every guest. What is your job title and what do you really do all day? Sure. Well, hi. Thanks for having me. I have a few job titles, so this will take up most of the podcast. I'm a professor at NYU, so I am a visiting associate professor and director of undergraduate studies at the Center for Data Science at New York University. What's the acronym on that? Sidisvatkadilisdus. Yeah, yeah, super good. New for NYU. Yeah, it actually spells out a constellation. It's quite cool. I don't know how constellations work. So I do that at NYU, and I also am a data science consultant for companies, both carrying out projects and advising them on projects where they hire other people, and also giving just like talks and presentations to people in companies about how to think about data science or work with data scientists. So, so sort of two things. But at NYU, what do I do? I answer student emails about whether or not they should major or minor in data science. The answer is yes. And then questions, Sean, as you and I have discussed, offline questions like, if I don't major or minor in data science, do I have any hope at ever becoming a data scientist? Which we all know the answer is a resounding no. Uh, if you don't major in data <laughs> science, you'll never do it. Ever, ever. Because you did, and I did, and David, yeah, well, David actually did. but oh, I do yeah. I do actually have a degree in data science, but not, not that... What's that like? It's fine. I mean, Sean's the one who hired me, so he can tell me how much that helped in his decision making. All right, Sean, let me know and we can get into David's performance review. It is mid-year review time. Yeah, so I advise students when we can, you know, exit buildings. I also, you know, have meetings with students and things like that. And I design like the undergrad curriculum. Well, I don't design it, but I advise on like folding in new courses and removing them. It was designed before I got there. And the state of New York has a say. Okay, great. And also as a professor, I teach a course called Data Science for Everyone, which is our biggest undergrad course at NYU and it's truly for everyone, so you don't have to have any programming or data science or really any background other than being vaguely aware of numbers and words, those two things. So I teach that class uh, during the year. I'm actually teaching an online summer version uh, right now. So I'm giving a final exam on Friday. How in the weeds do you want to get on what I do every day? I drink coffee. I sleep too late. Yeah. How much does your day-to-day -day change in a pandemic? Like any pandemic or this pandemic? <laughs> Start with this one and then generalize from there. Great. Perfect. 
It changed a fair amount. I'm in New York City, so I especially don't leave the house. Even now we're in some openings, but I'm erring on the side of not leaving too much. Yeah, so I, I took all my classes online instead of traveling places to give like join meetings or give presentations to companies. I do it all online. So basically it means I'm just in my kitchen all the time because I'm in New York and we have a one bedroom apartment. So the kitchen is where I'm working. You're really lucky if, if your shower is not over the uh, kitchen sink. Yes, which I, yeah. I've had many showers over the kitchen sink. So when did NYU start its data science uh, department? And when did it start this course that you're involved in in this undergraduate major? Sure. So it's it's actually a center for data science. I knew as I was saying it that I saying the wrong word. When did your data science gatherings begin? <laughs> so the center has been around for like six years or so. And I wasn't there at the beginning, though I did join them partly when I was at NYU Shanghai a few years back. I did some kind of outreachy stuff for them. The undergraduate program has only been around for a year. So I didn't write the proposal when I backtracked on designing the major. I didn't design the major because someone else did that, but I am the first to lead the major. So the major has only been around for a year. And I was the first to teach any undergrad courses specifically in our center, which I have been doing, which was data science for everyone, which I did in the spring 2019 semester. And then at the end of that semester, they approved the major. So even then it was like, well, if the major is not approved by New York State, it's just like a one-off class that we hope students find valuable. A lot of them are graduating seniors and were like eager to do some data science before applying for jobs and that sort of thing. Let's propel undergraduates who've got some quantitative yeah. training into the job market better. And if we get a new major at the center out of it, even, yeah. even better. And New York State was good enough to They prove. were. They were, yes. So we got the we got the minor first and then the major and, and now we have a joint major in data science and computer science. So finally, you know, the computer scientists get a say. They've been completely uh, elbowed out of the data science space. But the first time we taught the course, it was just like a pilot and we capped it at 30. But now we teach it at uh, 200 students a semester. So we like ramped it up wow. super fast. Yeah. So how much of what is taught under the guise of data science has been around before it was rebranded as data science? Because I'm always interested <laughs> in how data science as a track is obviously new in the sense that like degrees called data science yeah. are reasonably new, but like the taught material, yes. as we all know, is just rebranded statistics from the 1930s. So Sean will will know this, but I basically there's a lot from Rob Francis, <laughs> our, our grad school econometrics or, or statistics professor. This is a derailing, but do you remember his joke about type three errors? I don't think it's his alone, but I fold that in every single semester. What's the difference between a type one and no shit. No, what is a type three error? Damn it. I messed it up. <laughs> Can you tell the joke without completely ruining it? Yeah. So a type three error is just when you get uh, confused between a type one and a type two error. <laughs> That's all it is. Okay. No, cause I know it as a type three error is when you get the right answer, but to the wrong question. Ah. Which may be type four. I mean, the, yeah. the number type scale is long, so we can it <laughs> is, keep yeah. one. My, my understanding more recently of type four errors is when, yeah, just the whole model is completely wrong. But uh, yeah, we can, we can keep naming errors. So, but, but your question is a very good one. And I, for a long time, was resentful of the term data science because I just mm. felt that science has been working with data for a very long time in a scientific <laughs> fashion. And this is nothing new. And Sean and I did our PhD program and I was like, we spent a lot of time looking at pretty big data sets through you know, computational methods that involved statistical thinking, right? And so for a very long time, I was like, this is crap. It's just a buzzword, this and that. Uh, and then I needed health insurance because I was doing freelance consulting. 
And the NYU Center for Data Science was like, We're, we need someone to teach. And I was like, I am a data scientist. But I have come around. And I do think that there is something to the end of this. So, so some biases and parting line in here. But it honestly was like halfway through the first time teaching data science for everyone, I was working on the course. And I was like, you know what? This should be its own field. Like there's enough in here that requires mastery of enough different pockets that I got over my own skepticism of like, we're all data scientists mm -hmm. because there's enough in programming and enough in statistics and enough, I think, in substantive expertise for whatever you're working on, whether you have it or a partner that you're working with uh, on the project has it, that I think that like, there is something where suddenly the whole does become greater than the sum of its parts. So I do think there's something there. That said, everything I'm teaching, I either have learned in a statistics class in my own life or taught myself from a series of like stack overflow and medium posts <laughs> when I when it you know so we didn't do machine learning in, in our PhD programs but you know it's on the internet and you can figure it out that's interesting so you were skeptical and then you kind of realized maybe there is a value to this term I think that's relatively close to the journey that we took on the first season of the podcast some amount of railing against the term and talking about Venn diagrams and then like well, no one's come up with a better term, right? No, we all have a lot of cynicism about this topic. Are there good alternatives out there or? Well, that's yeah. what I mean. Like, I think data science is one of those terms that none of us kind of really like it, but nobody's yeah. come up with something where we're like, okay, we're ditching that and we're going yeah. straight into this new thing. So like I think we values. just- yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a p-value joke. Thank you very much. I've come around on the name, but I do think it's worth maintaining some of the cynicism as well, because the term A is not a great term, but B is still widely overused. And, you know, when people say they want a data scientist, they don't know if they're actually talking about someone who's like a statistician or like a hacker or an IT person or like a social media manager. Like they like when, when I work with companies and they think of data science, like truly it's like, can they fix my email? You know, like it's insane. And I will say that on like, this is purely anecdotal for myself, but like on LinkedIn or my own resume or whatever, when I used to say political scientist, maybe this is more about how terrible a name political science is. But when I said I was a political <laughs> scientist, no one cared about anything that I said or did. And then I changed it to data scientist and I get all kinds of crappy spam on LinkedIn now and like random people that I don't know what wanting to connect. So when you are out consulting to these companies, what yeah. kinds of companies and industries do you advise on getting into data science? And tell us a bit more about the differences between them, how you run those engagements and, and what that looks like day to day. Sure. I work with really big companies, mostly like Fortune 500, Fortune 100, like global companies. But I probably spend most of my time with companies that don't have much of a data science arm or wing or focus, like consumer product goods and like things like that. So like not tech companies at all. And they often either they have some data scientists who are doing some things or they have like nothing and they're just like under the impression of I need data scientists, even if I don't totally know why. This particular company that I'm thinking about, I've worked with for years and they would have me do the work. And then they decided they wanted to do something that required like a whole team, like, like rather than sort of like more of a statistical or one-off analysis, they wanted to build a whole machine learning algorithm to help decide promotions within their company. And so there, I mostly came in and they wanted me to advise on this team that they had hired in India. Uh, and the team in India is super great. I've worked with them and looked at their models, but my advice the entire time uh, was don't do this. <laughs> like your data is terrible until your data is better. There's no reason to throw any predictive modeling at this thing. And if you insist on it, you could probably do a regression. So how many, how many times did they pay you for that advice? A lot of times until they, they were like, we're doing it anyway. And I was like, okay, great. And so now I come in and help train 
the others in the company how to think about the output of this machine learning model. So I lost the argument that they it, it still shouldn't be used. But other companies will have will have issues where it's like they have a team of data scientists uh, and they're super like technical, you know, advanced degrees, maybe not in data science, but in like biostats or, or whatever. But then they have a whole bunch of other people who are on the managerial leadership side of things who have no idea how to talk to the data scientists. So yes. they already have them in-house. And I basically go up and I do these things where it's like, literally, I'm just like, if you don't understand what they're saying, ask a question. Like, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally, but, but having been on the data science side where you present results and people are like, uh... Okay. And like, I don't know, when people are not trained to think about data or think about statistics, they get very quickly afraid to admit they don't know in yeah. a way that I don't observe. If I were to come in and talk about like some jargon from political science, people would quickly be like, what do you mean by exit option or collective action problem? Whereas if it's like, I talk about, you know, mean squared error, they're like, they won't ask if that makes sense. But it does go both ways, right? Yeah. There's very little training in data science qualifications. Yes. And many people who come to it other ways never got any training in right. communicating. So is that part of it as well? Trying to Definitely. train the data scientists how to explain it in a way that will connect? Yeah. So I, that's a big part. I'm glad you said this. So that's a big part of what I focus on in my class. And yeah, if you can't share, you don't have to be, you know, write the most compelling novel there ever was about your results, though I would read that. The suspense as you press return. Mm. But I do share with students, you know, if no one understands what your results are, why did you make those results? And, and who are you communicating to? And even being clear for other scientists is something that we're not necessarily all good at. But I will say, reflective of the biases that are out there, I have yet to be hired by a company or like I speak at conferences and stuff too. I've yet to be asked to talk to data scientists about how to be better communicators. Like I'll fold it in, you know, and I will say as I go like, hey, leaders, here are some tips for working with data scientists. And I will say like underneath like the mirror of this data scientist is like, do not use jargon. Or if you are, be very clear about what it means. And I think one thing that data scientists are especially not good at is talking about the uncertainty around our results. And part of that, again, is because we're up against an audience that hears the word statistics or machine learning and thinks we're getting these like pinpoint accurate predictions and doesn't have any sense of, you know, all the uncertainties that go into these outputs. The maybe least successful presentation I've given along these lines was at a very like high, like a very technical company, not a tech company, but like a, I'm being very vague, but like these were like leaders who were had advanced degrees in like other sciences besides data sciences, but data science, we can't plural that yet. Uh, but in the room, this time it was like the leaders who were non-data scientists and some data scientists in the room at the same time. Normally, I just speak to leaders without the data scientists in the room. And, and I'm like, data scientists are people. Ask them things, you know. Uh, but this time, the data scientists were in the room. And I tried to, like, fold it in. But one of them was a very outspoken person who believed very strongly that what she was doing in data science was so complicated, the managers could never have a hope of understanding it. So... They shouldn't have, like, she, like, undid the whole premise, which is, like, we can learn from each other. And she was very adamant about it. That is gutsy to the, uh, to the people that pay your paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. She was, like, there's no way they would ever understand. I did talk to her afterwards because I was, like, oh, I didn't mean to, like, make it seem like you weren't doing sophisticated things. And she told me about it. And to her credit, it was extremely complicated. But you can still understand it. One has to worry if, if they didn't understand it at all, whether they will at some point look down a list of people and how much they pay those people and say, right. do we know anybody what that person does? And, <laughs> yeah. and does anyone else know what they do? Because if, if they can't find anyone else in the company who understands what that person does, that's right. 
quite risky, particularly right. in a recession. Right. Well, and how are you, if, if her results are used widely, you know, having managers who are implementing policies based on those results, you would like to imagine a world where they understand what's in these results as well. You don't have to understand the nitty gritty of every step of the model, but generally speaking, why we decided to classify that as like a risky investment and that as a non-risky one is like probably helpful to know, you know, so... So I was going to ask, I mean, something you kind of partly answered with that about that story about the data scientist, but you said that you haven't done much about talking to data scientists about being better communicators. Is that partly arrogance on the side of data scientists who think they don't need that? Or is it a part of the leaders who don't know that that's a thing that they should be asking? Because yeah. if it feels like like working in an enterprise environment where our work is literally useless if it doesn't cooperate with the business on actually you know, making better decisions. Yeah. Like you can't lock yourself in a room and and never speak to the decision makers because you're just going to get fired after a year when the money runs out or when people get bored. Right. So what what is it that's stopping data science being open to learning how to not be so technical? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, I think it's a really good question. And I think what you have, your, your hypotheses so far, I think are all at least part of the story, right? So there's some arrogance on the part of at first when you said that you're like is it due to arrogance i thought you meant like my arrogance and i was like i think so yes definitely due to my own arrogance uh yes but like you know data scientists we're doing technical stuff i can't be slowed down a misunderstanding on the part of leaders or non-data science not even just leaders but like anyone who's outside the field who feels that it's like this scary buzzword thing and therefore we can't kind of cross this this gulf and I think third, and so, well, both of those are related to my third point, which is this isn't necessarily unique to data science, right? Speaking from the academic side of things. I mean, we saw this, Sean and I saw this in political science a lot, which is that, you know, I am not here to educate the masses. I am here to push knowledge forward. And therefore, it's not my responsibility to do the translating, right? As long as my colleagues can understand me. And maybe we're experiencing this with data science a bit more because it is so rapidly becoming uh, involved in day-to-day real life in a way that other fields in academia not maybe at least the ones I know are not running up against. So we're kind of having that conversation in data science. But I also think that part of it is a failing on the side of educators. And I put I blame myself for this as well, because you know, I do talk to students about the importance of saying these things. And I will be the first to say I can't point you to a single lecture where I say, here's how to explain this, right? I never do it. And I think as you get more and more technical, the emphasis in our classes is technical mastery. And so why would we stop? So I don't know when you would learn these things, really. And I will say that I have companies who ask me to recommend students. We have a, a master's program at NYU. I do not teach in it, but it's like a very rigorous. And students who leave after this master's, not to like pitch the whole thing, but like I, I believe their technical competence in data science is very high. But I am not convinced that they would be good fits for most companies that I work with because I don't imagine that they, at least the few that I know, that they would be any good at, sitting in a room where they're the only data scientist, able to really take what everyone else is talking about, translate that into a data science project, and then translate it back, especially the translating back. And so I feel a little bit nervous about recommending people for roles because they miss that, like, I don't know, we talk about Venn diagrams, like that one Venn diagram where it's like the substantive expertise, like the interest in the business, I don't know is there. And I, it makes it for a tough match. And we're just not emphasizing it because we're so focused on the, the programming and the stats. It's almost like you listened to the first season of our... Uh... I was just going to say, I, I feel Sean and I are very vindicated there. I think we, we talk about this sometimes that I, I don't even know. I mean, you as an educator, do you think that's something that 
is possible to teach without just doing it? Because that's the hard part, isn't it? Because I think data science is also such a, there's such a Kaggle culture behind it. Yeah. Not to discaggle completely, but it's my go-to example of like, all you do as a data scientist is optimize a single metric that's been handcrafted for you beforehand that you don't have to worry about. And it's yeah. really easy to measure success. And it's really easy because yeah. you're just minimizing or maximizing some arbitrary number. Yeah. And obviously we know that that's maybe 1% of the job or whatever. Right. Uh, but, you know, it, uh, do you do you think that that's possible to teach in advance of then recommending someone for a job? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And I think it's like, I mean, there, there's two questions in there really, which is one, yeah, the, 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 the data that you're going to be working with and the people who give you that data and, or the people who say, what data do you need? Like all of that is super messy and we don't necessarily get that training when we get into super technical stuff in part, cause this technical stuff is hard to understand. And we're already maxing out like our, our semesters. I spend a lot of time on my, in my opening, my data science for everyone course, talking about like data is messy and trying not to give students too many prefabricated data sets for that reason. But that's, and most of them are just like, why are we talking about measurement when I want to learn machine learning? So even then there's like an impatience, right? Cause no one wants to like weed through crappy lines in a data set. But on the other hand, the whole idea of like, how do you be a better communicator around all of your work? So in, in, Separately, I am a stand-up comedian and I do shows in New York where I try to fold data science and comedy together and I tried to fold political science and comedy together and there's I'm lucky that in New York there's a theater that focuses on that and we have open mics where literally we encourage academics and grad students and postdocs and whatever to come in and talk about their field. So New York. So, so New, New York. York. Yeah. It must yeah. be like the nichest jokes in the world. It's right? so niche. <laughs> yeah. It, like it's so niche. It's a lot of fun. I mean, well, let me put all of this in the past tense because it's a pandemic and so they're closed. But uh until the pandemic, it was very cool. But it was it was shocking to me, like it takes a lot of work to become good at communicating this stuff. And I am not there yet. And I am still struggling to figure out how to talk about technical things in a way that doesn't both either I should say bore everyone to death who isn't technical or completely like get rid of all of the nuance and detail that you would want to satisfy a technical audience. Like it's really hard to do both of those things. Yes. But you know, there's a problem and you can frame that problem. Yeah. And you've seen that problem in reality when consulting and you know that the field, it's not mm -hmm. really a field, but data science education practitioners are not doing a good job of it and there's quite a few good reasons mm -hmm. I mean, one of them that you that you hit on there is many of the people going into data science from a purchasing the training mm -hmm. perspective want to learn the sexy technical stuff and when you try and teach them how to be a better communicator they're like this is not the course yeah. that i signed up for yeah so how did you learn those things the communicating side of things yeah i think through honestly through through brute force. I, I am someone who's always been interested in that. And Sean, I'll stop talking about grad school soon, but even in political science, in our PhD program, I thought for like years that public policy schools were there to translate political science research into policy. <laughs> Literally for like six years in grad school, I was like, thank goodness they're there pumping out all of our research. And then I- The, the articles roll down in tumbleweeds yeah. down yeah. State Main Street yeah. or whatever, and then they- <laughs> come into the Ford School and there's someone there who collects the, the articles and says- 100% that's what I thought happened. Go yes. and tell policymakers what to do. Yes, that is what I thought. 
I forget how I learned that that is not at all the case and that public policy is its own field that is not derivative of political science. But I did eventually yeah. learn that. And, and, you know, and, and Sean, you're <laughs> making me relive a lot of frustrating parts of grad school. But right. uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, but, but at the t- and I think it has changed since we've been there. So not to be all give too much grief to political science. And I think the science is generally, it has changed. And I think that more and more scientists are like writing about their research on Twitter. And I'm, you know, being quite critical of data scientists, but I learn a lot from data scientists who write on Medium and share their ideas. And I actually have like learned new skills through these people. So there are people who are doing it. It's definitely in research and academia, still not something that can help you get tenure, which is like the holy grail if your career is, is, is hell bent on, on research. So it's like, you can do that. If you care about it, and it's something that's always been important to me, and you're willing to do it, you know, endure the opportunity cost of like, you know, an hour spent figuring out how to communicate this to a non-scientist is an hour spent, uh, not spent writing an article for peer review. I will also say that I left academia, I was on a tenure track role up until 2016. And I left the year before I was up for tenure to go do science communication specifically. And I wasn't totally sure if that would take the role of like, I wrote, I worked at 538 um, for about a year, um, learning some writing, which it turns out I'm really bad at, and did a podcast with the Center for Data Science, which I guess was affiliated with NYU, and started doing all this consulting and started doing all this performing. And so it, it meant <laughs> a pay cut and it meant running out of health insurance, but I did it because I specifically wanted to be able to communicate science to non-scientific audiences. And this was even before, this is part of the, like, before I even called myself a data scientist. So I don't know, all of that is a long way of saying, like, I left this field in order to do the communicating because it's, to me, such different worlds. But they are coming closer Mm -hmm. together as people are demanding more from data scientists. And I do think it's changing in other social science fields, too, especially during a pandemic, right? We're hearing more from, even in the natural sciences, like infectious disease specialists in a way that we never heard from. And now we hear them on the news all the time, right? We're, we're listening to them now that we're in the middle of a yeah. storm. Yeah. And, yeah. and also everyone so. on Twitter is now an epidemiologist, which is well, great. Well, that's the risk, right? Well, and, to, and, to, well, and to Sean's point, it's like that was the argument for political scientists, which was like, if they can't understand my results, that's on them. And I'm not going to dumb down my work because I don't want people to put it in the wrong hands. And if anyone can run a regression and anyone can do you know, teach themselves, then we're in really dangerous territory. And for the most part, I believe in democratizing education of all kinds and skills and all of that. But there is the version where all of a sudden we're armchair experts and we see posts about how clearly we should never wear masks because blah, 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 because someone thinks they're a scientist. So what about the other skill? I would call it a professional skill or a thinking skill that's not necessarily about communicating what it is that you've done, but working out what the hell to work on mm. to begin with, which mm. I would call science. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just to take you back to grad school because we have not been. I love it. The 2010s of Michigan mm. often enough so far. <laughs> I don't think I learned a hell of a lot about technical or science communication in grad school or in political science or at political science conferences trying to explain my work. I saw your people. presentation, your your revolving door presentation at Midwest. Oh. Great. So is that, is, that, is that the one where a, a leading light in the field spotted that we had <laughs> failed to take the second derivative and confirmed <laughs> that we'd found a local maximum rather than a local minimum? <laughs> 
I'm mostly remembering how you first walked in a circle to emphasize the revolving door part of your story. <laughs> so give some in column A and some in column B on wins and losses in that presentation. But I do believe it was the same. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the, the panel the pennant was labeled Frontiers in yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. The idea that yeah, myself and uh, Richard were on the frontier, having not taken the second derivative, and definitely ended up ending up in a local or maybe global minimum. <laughs> we, both, <laughs> we both later left academia. Why did we start beating up on me? Yeah, again? No, we, were was, uh, about, oh, we were beating up on other people. No, no, no. I actually remembered that that presentation, except for that one part, was a very good, from a communication standpoint, uh, very good. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, I've always been good at science communication. Yeah. yeah. I think Sean was destined to leave academia. Yeah. Yeah. There may have been some early science. But the thing that I do credit graduate school and some of this is social science, my way of thinking about a problem was completely deconstructed. Mm. I, I went in probably thinking, yeah, you need to make a really good argument about something. And then, yeah, I'll learn how to do this stats thing, which will back up my, my arguments get a PhD, and then I'll write a lot of amazing research that will directly influence uh, policymaking or indirectly through through public policy schools. And uh. I, got, I got to grad school and kind of confronted the fact that it's really hard to know anything with any certainty. And that's very depressing for a time to basically have everything you know just kind of thrown in the bit. And then you slowly, if you have that kind of training, and, and it's, the, it's the major thing that I took apart from a bit of stats and a bit of programming, don't forget the game theory. Yeah, and, and game theory. You know, I don't remember a lot about the details of it, but it definitely structures how I think about solving any problem or thinking mm -hmm. through any problem. And I think that's something that is also a little missing from mm -hmm. data science education, which mm -hmm. is disturbing given that it's one of the words in data science is, yes. is, is science that, yes. you know, sometimes these courses have about 20 minutes to spend on research design. And it's like, here's they do a hypothesis test, just A-B test everything and it's cool. And then I remember interviewing candidates at the same time I was interviewing David three three or more years ago now and just asking people with masters and even in statistics. So you've got two explanations for why something's happening, two explanations for a phenomenon. How are you going to decide which explanation is the better explanation? And the answers that I got were not encouraging. Really? What did people uh, say? People said, oh, it's it's at least two years since I did my master's in statistics. So I don't remember any of that now. <laughs> okay. And then a whole lot of like very complicated answers about this kind of test or yes. that kind of comparison yes. or this kind of thing. Yep. And I tried to push people on, we need to understand what are the mechanisms? Is there a causal story? All these kind of things that mm -hmm. science forces you to think about. And now that I'm talking about it, it sounds even less sexy to teach, even harder to market. The biggest gift that I got from that training was this rewiring of my brain to think about how decisions are made, how people interact with each other, and how to study that. I don't know. I wouldn't know how to teach that in a course. I, this is very validating for me, like personally, professionally, as a teacher. Yeah, just amazing. Because, Sean, I totally agree with you that, and maybe this is just our bias. So, David, you tell us if we're full of shit, but Please. that the main thing that I learned at Michigan is is turning the world into questions and then finding principled ways to learn more about those questions and then think about how confident we are in what we've learned, right? And that involves like everything from how horrible is the data, why have I selected it, to the model, to the, all this stuff, right? But it's not just a lecture on data cleaning. Yeah, it's exactly. Testing. It's a research design question. And to be totally 
honest, I think the the place where I learned it the most in all of the stuff around like causal mechanisms and confounders and endogeneity and like all the things that can get in the way of learning from data, even if you have clean data in front of you, right? But how have you set it up? Came from my qualitative methods course with Anna GB and Rob Mickey, which was about, you know, given you don't have a huge, large, massive data set, how would you think about learning something about the world from a handful of case studies? If you've got four observations of post-communist countries. Yeah. <laughs> and it really required, I do not really do qualitative research, but it really requires thinking through, like, if this is true, what else is true? Observational, uh, or sorry, like observable implications and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it wasn't just that class, but that was one of the ones that shaped my thinking mm. the most. And for the first many years, I hated the whole, what is your puzzle? What is your question? I was just like, I just want to say something cool about the world. Like, leave me alone. Like, it, they had to, like, break me for me to yeah. come around to the... Yeah, that's and, what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then we, we were broken together. And then only now, like, way afterwards, do I realize that that feels to me like the one... Like, I'm, I'm technically decent, but I'm not going to be the person you should hire for, like, the most cutting-edge algorithm to predict whatever. Like, I can help you think about it, but I shouldn't be the one programming that. But I do feel, and again, maybe this is just some, some bias because I spent 10 years there, but I do feel that like turning the world into a question and then knowing how to, as you say, learn from that question is like a framework that I bring to everything that I do. And that's when I talk to companies, I, I, whether I'm proposing a project or like guiding them on how to think a project or how to even work with data scientists, I recommend to all of them to like start with a question, not an answer. And here's why. And I talk about science. And then I talk about like curiosity about the world and blah, 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 and openness to any outcome and not seeking particular results to back up your story, et cetera. But also it's just like, that's how you learn things. You have a question, you form that into a, a more focused, like a theory about what might be going on. Like, if this is true, what else would you see in the world? How would you test it? How would you know that this is like consistent with you? What would disprove it? Blah, blah, blah. So I talk about that with my consulting all of the time. And in my data science course, I spend the first few weeks saying like, set aside data and let's focus on that word science because it is in there and it's not just there to sound fancy even though for many people that might be there to sound fancy same mm -hmm. with political science is like we can abuse that term but i do make them do scientific method blah 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 and i am i am i am convinced that that's the right way to teach this class but i also worry that i for two reasons there's two reasons not to one is that means that the the time we spend on like statistics and machine learning is less because I spend so much time saying like, how do you set up a research design? What's an alternative hypothesis, blah, 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 right? So they get less time with the technical stuff. And I worry because from then on, are they just gonna be taking classes that demand technical skills? So am I setting them up for failure in the short term in their future courses at an undergraduate and master's program where it's- Only for them to realize 10 years later. Exactly. I'm so thankful that Professor Jones exactly. already told me about it. Because it's like, it's not baked in I, that I know of in, in many courses. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about the kind of like, because most people who are interested in data science are not current undergraduate students. So do I go to General Assembly or Flatiron or an online Coursera or whatever to teach myself? And I don't know how many of those, I imagine not that many, involve this kind of like scientific- design it's much more Not like from my experience learn python and that's it i mean david did you get this kind of stuff in your data science training less so than i would have expected from an academic data science course yeah so i think if you go to a data science boot camp not mm -hmm. run by academics you're maybe not expecting to see science as much of a topic but yeah being taught by actual academics you would maybe think there's more of a slant on it and yeah. i think it's twofold one is 
the the science part of data science, it hasn't been remarketed right. in the data science hype, right? Linear regression has, so it's now machine learning. So that's right. cool. We can still teach that. Right. But you know, p values were left behind, and then all that stuff you talked about, like actually doing science, which yeah. to me, from someone, I, I'm I'm a completely not scientific background. I. I I was a software developer before I decided mm. to be a data scientist. Like some of, but most of what you said is just intuitive to me as a way of thinking about things because it's very slightly similar to designing software. It's like sure. you want to solve the problem. You don't want people to tell you to put three buttons here and a fourth yes. drop down there. You, yes. You're trying to solve, get behind it and solve a problem. So I think the best developers also have that mindset, That's though right. there's no scientific rigor behind it. It's more just the way of thinking. Right. And I think, yeah, but it's, it's really interesting that you said that you thought the barrier might be that their future studies will be affected, which is possibly true. And it, but that's some short-termism for sure. But it's very right? short-termism. Yeah. And yeah. and it goes against what we've been talking about before is that there's this huge skill gap in the market of people yeah. who don't have those skills. Yeah. So, and on top of that, the technical skills are much easier to get anywhere. And and like, obviously it's variable quality, but if you know which Coursera course to take or which, which right. bootcamp to take, you can learn how to, how to create a neural network or whatever. That's right. That's almost, I mean, obviously it's complicated, but that's the trivial part of what makes a good data scientist. No, so I would want to call out the piece that you said is like, if you know what you need to know. And I think that's that if, which is how do you know if a neural network is the thing that would actually help you well, understand that. this thing? Or is it just like the sexy new thing and everyone's throwing a neural network at everything because that's the thing to do, which is probably more of what's happening. So I think you're right that it's like, and I don't know, I mean, they offer this in schools in like research design courses. So if you're like a social science major, not a data science major, you're probably going to take a research design or do a thesis or you're, you're going to get some exposure to that. And I wonder if data science, I'm thinking out loud now, like if I can propose to teach a research design course at the end of, of our sequence, because you spend so much time on the, on the technical piece. The one analogy that I, I hope helps students sometimes is like, okay, like when you're doing data science, like we can focus on the programming and the statistics and they weave together for the most part pretty well in the way, the stuff that we're teaching these days. And that's all well and good, but like those are tools. And it's like, you you work for a while and you have a hammer. You work for a while, you have a chainsaw. You work for a while, that. But if you don't know how to build a house, what are you going to do with a pile of tools? And I worry that we are producing data scientists who have more tools and less of knowing what to do with it. I even get this with my, you know, when I'm looking for research assistants at NYU and I, I you know, do a kind of a call and I find people who are, or even for, it's, I have trouble finding instructors for this course because I'll find advanced data science students, PhD students, master students, et cetera, who are super technically skilled, way more technically skilled than I am, but can't help me teach hypothesis testing and inference and all of that. So I actually am pulling mostly of my grad students who teach, who are my TAs are politics grad students. And I, again, not so much championing political science, though we do kind of, it's like, we have to deal with some messy stuff, but it's, it's, and my, it's my own bias, but it's, the social sciences are quite good at that kind of stuff. Natural sciences would be too, but their data tends to be cleaner. So I'm less sympathetic. Well, they create a lot of their data with machines yeah. that detect yeah. atoms fitting into each other that they spent five years building. So they right. get some good data from that. Right. Yeah. Right. What made you get into political science? Just sort of. Slightly had, awkward segue into the thing that we want to ask. <laughs> no, fine. I had no idea what to do with my life. And I took an undergrad international relations course right after 9-11. And I thought it was like the most important thing I'd ever taken. And I was going to go understand the world. Everything Sean said was 100% what was going through my mind. I was like, I am going to join the fellow truth seekers. And not in like a 
freaky like QAnon way, like like a genuine <laughs> like scientific gonna, yeah. I need science to prove the Earth is flat. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, this was back when the truth didn't mean something terrifying uh, uh, or conspiratorial, though you know whatever. Okay, and yeah, and I was like, I want to understand the 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 causes, the true causes of war, and why we are all dying, and all of that. And then I got there, and we did all this regression on like predicting the political effects of having a yard sign stolen. And I was like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> but you kept... I kept on. Yeah, yeah, I kept on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we were there for some of the dark, dark years together. Well, part of it is you do get a little bit brainwashed when you go into acupuncture. So I also did the like, I'm going to go for a master's and get it for free or minus the opportunity cost. And then like, if I want to continue the PhD, I'll go, but I could just stop at the master's that I didn't pay for directly. And but once you're there, you really do get brainwashed into thinking that if you're not doing work in academia, you're failing. And, you know, I kept going and didn't leave to go to the real world for years, even after I finished my PhD, despite spending 90% of my PhD wondering if I was in the wrong place. Have we gotten to the airing of regrets portion of the podcast? Is that what <laughs> I've wasted? I would be doing it all along. All right, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, on my, my good days, I am like super glad I went through it all and it's shaped my thinking and it's like pretty much like brain reorganizing when it comes to how you think about the world. And so it's hard for me to, to discredit that. It was, it was many years in one's 20s that I'm told other people had fun during, but I did learn a lot. And it's for better or worse, and again, it's either because I think it's really valuable or I'm so like, have given have so much of a sunk cost fallacy that it is what I continue to talk about. And, you know, when I left academia, I, I didn't intend to leave behind the things that I had learned. My goal was to like, hmm. spread it further, like to be an evangelist for it. So, so while the career experience can be rather crushing, I, I believe very strongly that the stuff that we were talking about, the stuff that we're talking about, the stuff that you both are talking about in this podcast and in your work is a skill that I wish people had. And I, I wish there was a way to impart the cool stuff of grad school without the crushing. Yeah, the soul crushing destruction of... You have to yeah. give up your entire sense of self-worth to learn how to think like a scientist. <laughs> but it helps. It helps. <laughs> Maybe to really re deeply reach that level of constructive despair, some kind of experience like that is yeah. needed in some way. I, I don't, I don't know. Have, I haven't... I haven't wiped my brain and repeatedly relearned this stuff, but it may not be teachable. Yeah. Certainly not teachable in the way technical skills are. Mm -hmm. The common go-to in that case is people say, oh, well, you can only learn it on the job. But if you just try and learn it on the job, what if you are that lone data scientist or in a small data science team and you're buffeted by the pressures of the organization? You, yeah. Where, where are you going to learn it from in this organization that will then hire Andrea to tell them that they shouldn't have hired data scientists yeah. yet or <laughs> yeah. that they, they need to learn what it means to learn things. Yeah. And it's something that David and I are, are wrestling with. We'd love to make a dent on that problem without having to recommend everyone to go and spend years and years yeah. training in this other thing. I, I mentioned our qualitative methods course, but that was maybe the one that hit it most on the head. There was, I guess, another research design as well. But you know, it wasn't any one course where it was like, yes. these are the yes. steps eventually, right? And so it was just part of the experience. And we, I honestly, even though I had learned it in these classes, you learn by doing just like you would for the yeah. technical side. And it wasn't until we were literally forced to write conference papers and a dissertation ultimately yeah. that I like, like it was at the end of the dissertation that I was like, I see why I did it this way. Like yeah, it really took a lot. It took a lot. And it wasn't enough to just stand in the front and say, you know, begin with a question. And, and there's a lot of uncertainty in statistics. Like that doesn't, 
do it. Yeah. I I went through the motions a lot, but for me also, it was looking back soon after spending, I think the last three days of writing on my dissertation, I was following that Einstein schedule of like sleeping for a very short amount of time, waking up with new ideas, writing them, falling asleep, exhausted. <laughs> and I'm glad I'll never have to repeat sleeplessness again, like, like that. I wrote my dissertation, the final, like, big chunk of it. It's unreadable, but, like, the whole second half, I wrote it at midnight in a Thai restaurant in Pittsburgh. It was the night that Steve Jobs died. It was a really fucked up night, and I somehow got my dissertation done. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. He gave me that final push on the Maybe way Maybe that night had the right vibes about oh, it for you. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason. What made that even possible to do those things was that yeah. asset that I took forward into that journey. So we've, we've talked a lot about where we might learn some of these non-technical skills. And, and it's why in this series, we're talking to people from, from backgrounds that mm. weren't linear data science backgrounds, whatever they are. Something that helps me make analogies, understand what's going on, explain things and communicate is to have had some experiences as well outside of academia, yes. outside data science. So you do some interesting things, very interesting things, very orthogonal <laughs> things to data science. One of them is being a fire-breathing circus performer. Yes, very orthogonal, yeah. By the way, I love the word orthogonality. I think I said that at the beginning, but I, uh, I do teach it in my class. Uh, and so you've validated my harping on the word orthogonal. And I got yelled at at 538 for using the word orthogonal. Um, speaking of science communicating, um, this wasn't even in an article. This was in a, a meeting. We were pitching ideas. And I was like, well, I think this is orthogonal to this other thing. And my editor was like, what does that mean? I was like, oh, it means like, unrelated to and she was like we'll just say unrelated to i was like but it's different like it means something very specific so how how does fire breathing circus performing influence your work <laughs> as a data scientist what if i was like that's how i discovered my award-winning algorithm was while breathing fire yeah please it's yeah. yeah i will i will let you know pie torch i think there's a there's a joke <laughs> on that thing yeah um, and for the record, for, for your vast audience of, of listeners who are circus enthusiasts, I am actually do I do fire eating, but not fire breathing. Fire breathing is a level Sean. of skills. Fire breathing is like the deep learning and fire eating is machine <laughs> learning. So I need to be clear that they're very different. Uh, so there's there's some circus communication for you. How does it influence? It doesn't really, but that's why it's valuable, right? It's like we all need things where you turn your brain off and go do something else. And so the main value it has provided to me, I've been doing circus. I got into it in grad school. I'd been dancing. I was a dancer growing up. So I always liked that kind of like movement stuff, but I did it during grad school to stay sane. And I kept going when I was a postdoc and a junior faculty member entirely to stay like balanced as much as I could be balanced, but like to stay as sane as possible. And it helps me put all the stuff that we've been talking about that I find very anxiety producing from the like soul crushing experience to the imposter syndrome, to the literally the deep uncertainty and, and fundamental unknowability of most things that we care about. Like every version of what we've talked about is potentially an existential crisis. And, and circus has been a good outlet for me to like literally be working on some project or dealing with something with students and freaking out about it and then going, doing that crazy thing and resetting and coming back with like a clearer head. So that's, that's the influence. And it's kept me alive, honestly. Not many people use fire to stay alive, but I do. I'll just say one other thing that it was one of the first things to really underscore the importance of the communication side of things, because it was at a circus event. I was performing at a music festival in Shanghai and it was the middle of this festival. We're about to go on stage 
And my friend who was our makeup artist and had done all this crazy body paint and like all this stuff, she was amazing. She turned to me and she was like, Andrea, she was like, I don't know why she had to tell me in this moment, but she was like, she was like, I have a confession for you. And I was like, okay. Uh, and she was like, I have no idea what political science is. I don't know what you do all day. <laughs> Like, I just painted she, you up as a leopard or something, yeah. but I have no idea. And it's like, we sit and make it, we, we were working together at this, at this uh, venue for like two years. And it's like, I sit in front of you every single day. You could have asked me at any other moment apart from when I was about to go on stage. But anyway, but I was like, oh, no one knows what the hell is going on in our fields. So that, yeah. And stand-up comedy is, is same. It's, it's, you know, it's uh, one, scientists have to be very careful about what we say and we have to be very precise. And stand-up is extremely precise as well but it's precise in a, in a way, like you want to make things funny and so forth. And you can talk about the scientific method there, but it's like, it's more liberating. Cause I can just say what I think. Whereas for the most part, when I'm presenting, you know, the results of research or trying to persuade one, someone to think like a scientist, yes, it's my opinion. It's throughout and humans are biased and it's, it's blah, blah, blah. But it's standup is very liberating because I can just do like the airing of grievances that I want to. I used to go quite a bit. I would teach in the afternoons and then like literally walk around the corner in Washington Square Park and do stand up. And it's just like, just talk about how New annoying York everything Park. is. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now yeah. I don't do any of that. Now I sit Amazing. at home. Yeah. I guess a couple, just a couple more questions. One is, why do you do what you do? <laughs> Especially given that, you know, so much of your work or our work, especially in political science, I'm sure is quite depressing as you've just laid out. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, this is the question I ask myself every day. And I, the pandemic is, is not good for, for people's mental health. And, and I think I'm no exception on that. And so especially not being around others, you have even more time and the protests and everything that's going on, right? It's a rough time to be alive, even though I'm, you know, have a lot of privilege, et cetera, right? Okay. And so when you're sitting alone in a room and it's just you and a whole bunch of emails of people needing stuff from you, there's even more opportunity to be like, why am I doing this? And the fun part of interacting with people, whether they're real people or students or whatever, or audiences who want to better understand the world and have asked you to come in or have inadvertently asked you to come in by virtue of signing up for their, your class or whatever, it feels a lot more rewarding where in real time people are like, cool, I hadn't thought about the world that way. And like, sure, that's not a substitute for a 5,000 year PhD program, but it's something, right? Sitting alone in a room, I don't know. I don't know why I do any of it. Something's got to pass the time. And <laughs> they did release a new season of Dark on Netflix. So maybe I'll just give up on data science. No, I, I honestly well, think- you do that, data science, you'd be sat at home now anyway, right? This so. is true, yeah. No, I honestly think that like, the world is hard to understand and I would like to understand it better. And I think that a value add that I have is helping other people also help us figure out how to understand the world better. And I think that like, like my research is fine. I'm not doing anything particularly landmark on my own, but I'm, I remember being the moments where I was really excited to learn about science and thinking about science, like structure of scientific revolutions, all that big picture stuff. I love that stuff. Right. And grad school did open my eyes to that kind of stuff. Like there's a moment when you're like, this is cool and exciting and the uncertainty isn't bad. It's like something that means we can probe further. And if mm. I can impose that kind of curiosity and excitement in other people, then great. I didn't waste all my time. But I do waste a lot of time, to be clear. <laughs> I, I think that's a really good, I, I, I like the scientific way of thinking about data science. Because I think if you, if you look at data science course and it's all geared towards like just algorithms that do stuff for you, yeah. it's kind of 
there's a purpose missing from that. I think, and so many, you know, the the most popular algorithms these days are all all the ones that are not interpretable, which yeah. suggests that people don't care about underlying causal mechanisms and like causal inference is still a, a new thing, and people still have to, you know, Judea Pearl still has to write new books about why we should worry about causality. Yeah. And in 2020, that doesn't feel like it's a, uh, it, it's right. Yeah. So I think I think we need more data science like that, where that's the ultimate goal, not like let's get 0.74 accuracy or whatever out of out of a machine but then we don't understand and then we have a whole subfield of trying to understand these black boxes so well, why not just start with something that is causal in the first place <laughs> yeah yeah and think about endogeneity for like a half second but i wish i could and i guess i can since we're all living on zoom these days have you both speak in my class because you're really validating a lot of stuff that I say to students who are like, yeah, but why aren't we learning, you know, the next algorithm after this, right? You know, and even at companies, people come up to me and they're like, oh, I really loved your, even after I give a presentation, they'll come up to me and say, oh my goodness, I want to become a data scientist. Like, how do I become a data scientist? What programming language should I learn? And you're just like, it's like, what brand hammer should I buy, right? Like, you're like, it doesn't matter, really, as long as you You've know. You've anticipated our final question, which is what you tell people <laughs> when they come up to you after a presentation, they say, yeah, I really like all that stuff and something, something science, something, something uncertainty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but what, how do I get into data science and what courses should I take? And how, how do you answer that question? So I usually give them answers they don't want, which is I recommend research methods books <laughs> from like social sciences. I like uh, the old structure of scientific rev rev revolutions Ooh. like Kuhn and Popper. And, that kind of yeah. and there's a, um, there's one I really like, which is, um, I'm, now blanking on the it's March and Olson like, modeling one yeah 1956 it's, not it's you know like, very like difficult you'll cover with like Times New Roman font <laughs> like it's not um and I actually was gonna buy a copy of it for my editor at 538 the one who who banned the use of the word orthogonality but then I saw that it was like 170 dollars because it's like out of print <laughs> but if you three two of you want to get together we can co-author something for uh for everyone no, but I do. I say, I honestly, I say you want to go to like a research methods uh, source if you can, if you want to learn how to like think about how to design a question. And to me, you know, people want to learn these technical things. They want to be able to say, I can do the such, build a such and such neural network or whatever, right? I speak all these languages or I can program in all these languages because that's more fun than saying I can think like a scientist. But to me, knowing where to even focus your attention and how to think about what that would even look like is so much harder than executing the code. The easiest part for me as someone who is not that sophisticated a programmer, so I don't want to diminish people who are like deep programmers and doing really thoughtful, impressive things um, at like the, the frontiers to use our favorite word of computer science. Like that's not to diminish that, but the programming I'm doing is very utilitarian and it's very much only after I've done a lot of thinking about what would it look like to better understand something that I care about. And, and I think that gaining those skills is much harder. And so I don't, there aren't good resources. Like these, these online courses will tech you up. If you know what you need to do, it's easier to go out and learn how to do a neural network. And it's fun for me to code. It's kind of a break from the like more existential grappling that we do when we think like, is this ever even knowable or not? And honestly, there aren't, there aren't good, there are not good resources out there for that kind of stuff yet. I'll point them to your podcast, I guess, from now on. <laughs> For more questions. Yeah, yeah. I guess they can come to the NYU Center for Data Science and learn from you directly. Well, they can. And I do, our summer courses are actually open to everyone. So you can enroll in our six-week data science for everyone version. It's totally online. It's 
expensive, but you can do that like rather than like a, a Coursera or a. There is no or discount code for this. Oh God, no! Yeah, <laughs> you think I have the power to issue an NYU discount code? Okay, yeah. and what advice do you give if people? proceed that question with i'm really unsure about whether i'm any good with numbers mm. or whether i'm any good with computers but i feel like this is a thing i need to learn how to do because mm. i think there's a lot of really great latent data scientists out there mm -hmm. uh, who will never remotely believe that they can enter the field because i didn't do enough calculus at high school or exactly i don't have a numerate degree do you have anything in particular you say to to those people yeah. So two answers. The short one is just on the end about the calculus in high school is just to quote our professor, Rob Francis again, who was our stats professor in grad school, who always said that no one is like inherently bad at math. You've just had bad math teachers. And so I, that meant a lot to me because I'm bad at math, but I also had, you know, and I had some pretty good teachers, <laughs> but, but there is a fear around numbers and people just categorize themselves as like non-numeric people. And I think that's, I'm not a math person, right? And I think that's um, a disservice because numbers are just letters that mean different things. Whatever, right? <laughs> and then people walk away and they're like, why did we invite her? So I, 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 I challenge to anyone, like, you know, if you think you're not technical, wait till you see how bad I was and look what I'm doing. Yeah, whatever. And it's like, there's, there's a lot that, that is quite a bit more intuitive if you get over your own fear or your insecurities around math. So there's that. But the other piece of this is, look, if you genuinely just like do not have an interest in learning computer programming or just like hook stats and, and think that like it's definitely not for you, you know, A, again, continuing to challenge that. But if you still feel that way, like I say to to everyone that we need people with subject matter expertise working alongside data scientists all of the time. And there, you know, data science, going back to our beginning conversation, like is data science its own field? Well, yes. And it also pulls from so many fields that we could benefit from computer scientists and statisticians and absolutely people with substantive expertise. And so again, it comes back to that communicating where the person who is not a data scientist has to get over their fear of saying, I don't understand what you're saying to a data scientist. And a data scientist has to say, well, if they don't understand, I'm not doing a good job of explaining, not, oh, well, go take a class and come back to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so getting over that hump to get people to work together, I think is a very big part of it. And I also think that a lot of people who are substance area experts who have like some sense of how you might build a data science project, like could really help with that hard part, which is asking the right questions. What are the observable implications? What would falsify this? Knowing like what sort of data is even out there or what, oh, that would make no sense to know this. Like, I don't need to know this particular variable because we, that was no, like, we need that. We can't just rely on people who are good at the technical side of things. So maybe the people who are skeptical about their own technical ability could be a hugely valuable. Huge. Resource. Yeah. And, you know, again, I wish there was somewhere a little bit more, maybe just ego boosting for like, you already know more about data science than you think, you know, like here, just turn your curiosity and your knowledge into a, the scientific method and find a data scientist. Maybe we can start a matching algorithm anyway, between the two. <laughs> I, I gave a presentation in, in Sweden at a conference, just mostly saying that for my own benefit to remind myself, I used to leave the house. And at the end, someone raised their hand. It was, and it was about like measurement or something. And someone at the end was like, do you think there's any room for qualitative research in data science? And I was just like, oh, I failed because my whole point is a yeah. lot of it is qualitative research. And so we need those people more than we need another round of technical people. We need both, right? And part of the reason I'm teaching data science for everyone, so there are other undergrad courses at NYU, and I feel very strongly that I, I came back to teach this course because it aligns with this mission of like 
spreading the gospel of thinking like a scientist, is that this course is meant to attract students from the humanities, from the arts. We had journalism students, people from education, all this kind of stuff, because these are the voices that I think we need more of in data science for a lot of reasons. And I hope that um, you know people listening who are out there who are not data scientists and are also not you know able to go to undergrad can find a way to have their voices heard in these conversations. The last thing I'll say is it still does benefit you to learn some of the technical skills. So even if you think you're allergic to math or whatever, it's worth, you know, I don't, I can't point you to a research methods or research design course, but you could take a course in Python or whatever. You could take a course in statistics or, or machine learning or whatever, just to get a sense of what's actually going on. And an analogy I'll use here is like, you don't have to become an expert in it to appreciate what it is. You're never going to be a technical superstar. Still getting some of those foundations is helpful just so that you have a sense of what's going on because there's such a gap right now where leaders are like, well, the predictive model said seven, so it's seven. And you're like, that's just so wrong. And you don't know how mm. wrong you are. I mean, one of the things I, I did in a different presentation for a company, I was like, I was like, all right, you're not going to, you don't have time. You're, you're a high powered executive. You're never going to even sit down and do a 10 week, you know, flat iron school, whatever. Right. Cause you don't have time. I was like, here's what you could do is ask the lead data scientist or whoever you're partnering with or whatever to show you the, the lines of code and to show you the data or even pull out a random subset of the data if it's some massive thing, just so you can see a little bit of like, look at the numbers in Excel. Like that's all I'm asking. Yeah. yeah. And when, I, when you see that like leadership has gone up, what it means is this number and see the, you know, you can do a scan, blah, blah, blah. And even then, and some people were like, yeah, okay, cool. Like, like five minutes, just look at it. Just see that it's not a, ma a black box, that it's just like line, right? Yeah. And then I still had this guy who was like, I don't have time for that. I don't have time. And you're just like, you, you do. Aren't you the least bit curious about what these expensive people do? Honestly, yeah. I should be like, you know what? I'm ending this presentation five minutes early. So you have that five minutes now. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I think we had a whole episode on this. Yeah. Uh, back in the first season. Some people have got into data science before knowing what it is they were, were buying. Yeah. I'm sorry. I have so many examples. I did another presentation and I was part of a team. I gave my spiel about whatever and variants on what we've talked about. And another facilitator who helps with like leaders, leaders reimagining and like planning for chaos. This was like as the pandemic was starting to tick up and it was like, imagine the, a big shock has struck the world. And everyone's like, oh no, you know, uh, but I go, okay. Like, like a week later, it would not have been okay. It would have been traumatizing to use this example, but this yeah. was the imaginary thing. And they're like, this is happening and China's on fire and that's going on. And they were like, imagine all these things are going wrong. Like, how do you as a leader, like pivot, blah, blah, blah. And one of the examples of like, imagine Amazon just hired away all of your data scientists. What do you do? And everyone freaked out. And they were at the, like the whiteboard and the flip charts or whatever. And then at the very end, I was like, I have a question what are you using these data scientists for? And no one had an answer. They just freaked out. <laughs> so I say that to my students when they're like, do you think I could get a job? You're like, yeah, no one's going to know what to do with you, but you can get a job. <laughs> Isn't that insane? That is wild. So here's an expensive resource. You don't know what they do, but Amazon just took them from you, which yeah. is a signal. Yeah, because if Amazon could, could never be wrong, you know. It so. could just be a signal that Amazon does know what to do with them and that you should never have hired them. Yeah. A lot of testable hypotheses there. Yeah, there really are. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. On that note, well, thank you for joining us. And where can people find you online, in real life? <laughs> you can find me in my apartment all of the time. 
don't perfect. don't don't find Andre in real life. This is not no. the time. Where can people find this this show that you're running? And... Yeah. So the best way to keep track of all my crap is social media. So Instagram and Twitter, I am at Jonesroy. My last name with no hyphen, uh, J-O-N-E-S-R-O-O-Y. The show is called Ask a Political Scientist. And you can look for it on YouTube, I guess. But it's you can go to, there's a bit.ly ask APS or askaps.eventbrite. We'll get you to a schedule of what's going on each week. We'll be back in the fall for election crap. Back in the fall to yeah. lose your mind again. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, maybe we'll catch up then. Yeah, good. If Yeah, the world will have changed. We will have lived through like 10 millennia of history by then. So happy to do it. Season two of Halfstack Data Science Podcast is brought to you by Egg on Air, a new series of live online and on-demand events created by DataIQ. Learn more and stay tuned for updates at egg.dataiq.com. Mm-hmm.